Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9. This is the book of Acts, chapter 9. The dictionary describes a miracle as an extraordinary event which surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural cause. So say that again. It's an extraordinary event which surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural event. Now, I think that's a really good definition because according to that definition, miracles come in many different forms. In our study today, we're going to see four different types of miracles in these verses, four different miracles in these verses. And as we look at them, we're going to consider what they show us about God and about the gospel and what they mean for us and for our faith. The title of today's message is Authentic Miracles, Authentic Miracles. And in this section, we're going to see uh, four different miracles. And here are the miracles we're going to see in this section. First of all, we're going to see a new man. Second, we're going to see radical forgiveness. Third, we're going to see a new body. And fourth, we're going to see life out of death. So let's go ahead and work our way through those four miracles with the first one beginning there with a new man. In our previous study, we looked at the incredible conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a man who had been the chief persecutor of Christians, and he ended up surrendering his life to Jesus. Well, we left off last week seeing this incredible sight. Saul of Tarsus was baptized as a Christian. And today we pick up the story, seeing just how radically Saul's life was changed as a result of the encounter he had with Jesus. I'll read to you starting in the second half of verse 19 here in Acts chapter 9. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ." Saul had come to Damascus to arrest Christians and to destroy Christianity. But now here he is, he's hanging out with those same people he had come to persecute. And it is hard to overemphasize the amount of of grace that these Christians had in their hearts towards Saul, this man who had come to Damascus in order to hurt them. Now they welcome him as a brother and they invite him to stay in their homes with them. Surely some of them must have been curious. They must have been suspicious. They must have wondered if he's truly converted or if maybe this whole thing is just a ruse, if it's just a a ruse to infiltrate them and hurt them even more or even, even worse. But as Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love hopes all things. Love believes all things. So these believers in Damascus, they were willing to take a risk on Saul because they believed that God truly can make a person a new 
person. God really can change people. They had experienced that change themselves as they had come to know the gospel, as they had believed that God is in the business of redeeming people and changing who we are from the inside out. One of the evidences of just how much Saul had changed is shown in the fact of what it says there in verse 20, that immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Back in that time, the custom was that in a Jewish synagogue, if there was a distinguished visitor, that distinguished visitor would almost always be asked to stand up and speak to the assembly. And Saul of Tarsus would have been a distinguished guest anywhere he went. He was a member of the Jewish religious council. And even if people didn't recognize him personally, recognize him by his looks, they would have been able to tell by his clothing that he was a distinguished rabbi. And so Saul, now a believer in Jesus, he takes advantage of this open door, this opportunity, this platform, which he had in the Jewish world of that day to speak to these audiences at the synagogues and proclaim Jesus to them. And he would go into these synagogues and he was invited to speak to the assembly. So he would stand up and he would tell them about Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah. And how he would tell them also how he himself hadn't believed it at first, that he thought that Christians were blasphemers because of what they believed about Jesus. But recently, he would explain he had come to understand that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and that the scriptures supported it. And therefore, the right thing for them to do as Jews was to embrace their Savior and their Messiah, who was Jesus. Well, Saul knew that the synagogues were a platform that he had access to, where he could share this message with a lot of people. And my question for you would be this. I wonder, what is the platform that you have access to? What are those platforms? Where are those places where you can share that message with people of what God has done in you, where you can tell that story of how you have had a change of heart and a change of mind about Jesus? Well, Saul preached Jesus in the synagogues saying that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, sometimes people, when they hear that Jesus is the Son of God, they find that confusing or maybe even a little disconcerting, right? They, they think if you call Jesus the Son of God, are you then saying that he's not actually God, right? Maybe he's something less than God, that he's merely the Son of God. In Jesus' day, though, everyone knew what this meant. They understood that to call someone the son of something meant that you were completely identified with that person or with that thing, that their identity or that identity was your identity if you were the son of something. So for example, to be called a son of lies meant that you were a confirmed liar, that you are a liar down to the core of your being, that that was the entirety of your character, that you were a liar. So therefore, to be a son of God in the same way was essentially to say that you were God down to your very core and down to your very being. So when Jesus called himself the son of God and other people heard him say that about himself, they would have understood that this was actually a claim to deity. In fact, on two occasions in the gospels, when Jesus called himself the son of God, he was accused of blasphemy for doing so. 
And so think about what a revolution this would have been in the heart and in the mind of Saul of Tarsus. Just a few days prior to this, he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and now he does. Just a few days prior to this, he would have considered it blasphemy to say that Jesus was the Son of God. By implication, Jesus is God, and now he himself is is teaching others and proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. So to preach that Jesus is the Son of God is to preach the perfection of Jesus' life, the perfection of his work for us on the cross. And that's why, where I would say his deity perhaps matters the most, in the incarnation and in the crucifixion. Because the message of the gospel is that God himself came to us and gave himself in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. God didn't send someone else to do that. He did it himself. Only God, because he alone is perfect, is able to be that perfect sacrifice for our sins. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that in dying for us, God was saying, I will take your record and in exchange, I will give you my record. So I take your record, and in exchange, I give you my record. It would be like this. If your record of your deeds, good and bad, were written on a piece of paper, and so were Jesus's, he would take your record, and he would take his record, and he would scratch out the names on the top of them, and on your paper, he would write his name, and on his paper, he would write your name. That's what Jesus did for us in this great exchange. And that's why it's only possible that he do this if he was God. Only an infinite being can make an infinite payment for sins. And that's what God did when he laid down his life for us. Paul would later write it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He would say this, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. All of that is bound up in this simple statement that Jesus is the Son of God. And it says that people were genuinely amazed at the drastic change that had taken place within this man, Saul of Tarsus, the man who had been the chief persecutor of those who espoused belief in Jesus. Now he himself had come to believe those very things and was preaching them publicly. Saul of Tarsus was a new man. Later on, he himself would write these words. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Saul of Tarsus lived that out before he wrote those words. He knew what it meant to be a new man and to have his life be tr changed and transformed and become a new person. I remember when I was in high school and I, I came to Christ and one of my friends told me one day, he said, you know, you've changed. And he didn't mean it in a nice way. He said, oh, now that you're all into Jesus and stuff, you've changed. But I thought, what a great compliment. That's the, the nicest thing you could ever say to me is that I have changed. Saul had become a new man at the core of his being. His beliefs, his actions, his attitudes, and his desires were changing. Whereas before he was full of anger, full of hate, now he's full of love and compassion. No one had to tell Saul that he needed to share his faith. They didn't have to tell him, now that you're a Christian, here's what you have to do. You have to go out and, and share your faith. No, no, no. He was just excited about the change that had taken place in his life, and he couldn't stop himself from sharing with others what he had learned about Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. 
We need to stop and pause right there at verse 23 because there's an important phrase there. Did you catch it? It says, when many days had passed. What we know from the other writings of Paul is that the many days referred to here was actually a period of three years. Three years. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells this story of how when he was in Damascus, that's what we're reading about here in Acts chapter 9, he was in Damascus, and then it says, then he went down to Arabia for a time, and then he returned to Damascus. So he's in Damascus, goes to Arabia for a time, and then he returned to Damascus. Now, Arabia kind of began to the south of Damascus and went all the way down into what is now Saudi Arabia or what we call the Arabian Peninsula. So he didn't necessarily go very far. Maybe he went all the way down into the Arabian desert. We don't know exactly where he went in Arabia. And we also don't know what he did in Arabia during this time. Some people have tried to imagine what he did and kind of tried to, to, to figure it out. Some people imagine that Saul went to Arabia on a mission, in other words, preaching to people in that region about Jesus. Other people think that Saul went to the Arabian desert for solitude and that it was during this time he spent this time with the Lord. Now, we don't know what, what Saul did for those three years in Arabia, but it seems from his later writings that it was during this time that he came to understand that the gospel is for the whole world not only for the Jewish people, but that the message of God in the gospel is that God wants to save people from all nations through Jesus Christ. And that is going to be a major theme as we move forward in the book of Acts. Well, let's continue there in verse 23 of Acts chapter 9. It says, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Saul the persecutor has become Saul the persecuted. It must have been a very humbling experience for Saul to have to be let down in a basket, you know, hidden in the city wall or from the city wall there. It's not exactly a triumphant way of leaving the city. Think about how Saul had come to Damascus. He had come to Damascus full of triumph, full of power, with a sword raised, striking fear in the hearts of people. And now he leaves Damascus humbly in a basket, hiding, running for his life. Is that better? Saul had gone from being a persecutor and now he is the persecuted. He's given his life to Jesus. And what has he got as a result? He's traded power and triumph for weakness and humility. Here he is hiding. He's being snuck out of the city in a basket. If you would have asked Saul, Saul, was it worth it to trade all that you had? Pomp, prestige, wealth, to trade all that you had for this, being persecuted and chased, losing everything, having nothing, what do you think Saul would have said? You know what he would have said? He would have said, it was absolutely worth it. I would do it all a hundred times again. It was more than worth it because I have become a new man in Christ. You can have all the other stuff. Man, I don't need that stuff. You can have the power. You can have the fame. You can have the money because what does any of that even matter compared to the hope of the gospel? Saul had become a new man. He was radically transformed in his thinking, in his heart, and those changes affected his actions. And that's the way it works. God changes us from the inside out, from the inside out. You know, there are a lot of people who try to change themselves by only changing their outward actions. 
But only God can make you a new man or a new woman by transforming you from the inside out. So this was the first miracle. And this is a miracle that God does even today. It's a miracle that he will do in your life as well as you surrender to him like Saul of Tarsus did. Well, the second miracle we see in this section is the miracle of radical forgiveness. Look at what it says in verse 26. When he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Saul of Tarsus, now a committed Christian, he returns to Jerusalem where he had previously been, the place where he had been where he had led a brutal persecution against the Christians, which led to many of them fleeing their homes as refugees and others to jail. Even others were sent to the grave. You can imagine all of the emotions involved in this. In Saul's heart, there was a desire to come back to these people, perhaps to apologize for what he had done and to tell them how he too now had come to know Jesus as his Savior and Lord. But for many of these people, they looked at Saul, and when they looked at him, the only thing they could see was a killer, a man who killed their friends, a man who put their husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, uh, brothers into prison. He had terrorized them. He had hurt them in ways that we can only imagine. And there were some who said, we don't believe this is for real. We don't believe this man has really changed. And so Saul comes to Jerusalem three years after his conversion, and they still refuse to accept him. They're still suspicious of him. Three years later, there's a degree to which you can sympathize with these Christians there in Jerusalem. You can understand why they might have had a hard time with Saul. Now, I'm not saying what they did was right, but you can sympathize with why they would have felt this way. You can sympathize with why it was hard for them. I mean, how many of you, maybe you can relate to this. There's someone who hurt you or someone who hurt someone that you love. And you know in your head that the right thing to do is to forgive them. But it's very hard because of the severity of what they did. Or maybe you have forgiven that person, but what you struggle with is trusting that person again. Maybe you say, okay, I forgive them, but there's no way that I'll ever trust them again after the things that they've done. Let me first of all say this. Forgiveness and trust are two separate things. So on the one hand, we must forgive, not only because we've been forgiven, but because if we don't forgive others, we are the ones who suffer. You know, they say unforgiveness is like a prison cell that you lock yourself up in and you're the one holding the key. Another way it's been put is this, that, that holding on to bitterness in your heart is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. In the end, you're the only one who's hurt by it. And yet to forgive someone doesn't necessarily mean that you immediately trust them again either. Trust is something that takes time to gain, but can be lost in an instant. And once you've lost someone's trust, it takes longer to gain it back than it did to get it in the first place. Maybe some of you relate more to Saul of Tarsus because you've been on that side of the equation. You've done regrettable things in the past. You've hurt people and you're sorry for it and you really want to make things right and move forward. But it seems like that person or the people that you hurt, they still don't trust you. They don't want anything to do with you. You're not sure if they have actually really forgiven you. I would encourage you 
in this way. I would say this. Understand that trust is not something that can ever be demanded. I think this is a mistake that a lot of people make. They think that trust is something that can be demanded. It's not. Trust is something that must be earned, and that takes time. Eventually, Saul would win the trust of these people in Jerusalem, but it would take a long time to do that. When I look at this situation, I'm amazed by the gracious attitude that Saul of Tarsus showed towards the Christians in Jerusalem. I mean, here he is. He's been serving Jesus for the last three years. He's been preaching the gospel. He might say, hey, look, I gave up everything to follow Jesus. I endured assassination attempts. I've endured death threats because I became a Christian. And now you guys won't accept me as a Christian. You talk about having the love of Jesus, about being forgiven and forgiving others. And you won't even give me a second chance. But Paul didn't say that, or Saul didn't say that. He was gracious. He was patient with these people. He understood that he had done something very serious against them, and it would take time to win their trust back. And I appreciate this about him. He didn't stomp off. He didn't take his ball and go home. He didn't say, well, then I'm done with church if you Christians are going to be like this. Uh, He showed grace and patience. And he said this, if there is any love lacking on the part of the Jerusalem Christians towards me, then I will make up that love that is lacking by showing them even more love in return. And I'm committed to winning their trust in due time. Think about how hurtful this whole situation must have been for Saul to be rejected by this group of people. He's rejected by the Jews. They don't want him. And now he's even rejected by fellow Christians. And we think about the people in our day who in one way or another have been hurt by Christians or been hurt by the church. If that's you, I would say this. If love is lacking on their their side, on the part of Christian people towards you, then I wouldn't want to challenge you and encourage you. What if you could be like Saul and ask God to give you even more love to make up for what is lacking in their love towards you and ask God to give you the patience to be gracious towards them? Well, verse 27 says this, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed among the Helen, or against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Do you see what happened there in verse 27? This guy Barnabas comes. He puts his arm around Saul and he says, guys, Saul is with me. He puts his arm around him and he says, come on, guys, are are we really going to treat a brother this way? He's really converted. And if he's not, well, then fine, we'll find out. But listen, God has called us to forgive. Hasn't he? Let's do it. Can't we forgive him? I love this guy, Barnabas. You know, when we first met Barnabas, you know when it was? Acts chapter four. We first met Barnabas there. And it says in Acts chapter four that Barnabas sold a large piece of land that he owned and he gave that money to the church there in Jerusalem to be distributed for the needs of those who had need. His real name, by the way, was actually Joseph. Barnabas was his nickname because what Barnabas means, it means son of encouragement. And that's who this guy was. He was a son of encouragement, an encouraging brother. Whenever I think of Barnabas, there are a couple people who immediately come to mind who have that same spirit and heart that Barnabas 
Barnabas had. Encouraging people, generous people, the kind of people who would put their arm around somebody and bring them to church and say, this guy's with me. Later on, Barnabas becomes a missionary. He's going to become a church planter. He's just a wonderful, generous person who was sold out for Jesus. And may God give us many, many more people like Barnabas. We need more Barnabases in the world and in the church. The second miracle we see here in this section is the miracle of radical forgiveness. At the encouragement of Barnabas, the Jerusalem Christians forgave Saul for the terrible things he had done to them and their loved ones in the past. And Saul of Tarsus also forgives the Jerusalem Christians for rejecting him and refusing to believe that he was indeed a converted person and a changed man. This is the work that God does in our hearts through the gospel. He makes us able and willing, even wanting to radically forgive. And the reason we can forgive radically is because we have been forgiven radically. And therefore, we're free to forgive others who have sinned against us. And I'll tell you this, it is an incredibly freeing thing to forgive others who have hurt you. If you are holding on to bitterness against someone in your heart right now, if you're holding on to unforgiveness for some past actions, I don't envy you, not even a little bit. In the very best sense of the word, I feel sorry for you because I know that it's not enjoyable. I know it's not easy for you to bear that burden. I've seen unforgiveness ruin people's lives before. And one of the wonderful miracles that God works in a person's heart through the gospel is to make us able to forgive and even able to love those who have hurt us in the past. And we see here in the incredible reconciliation that took place between Saul of Tarsus and the Christians in Jerusalem, we see that miracle of forgiveness. We read there at the end of this section that Saul was once again targeted for assassination and once again he had to flee for his life. The disciples helped him to escape to Tarsus, which is Saul's hometown. He was Saul of Tarsus. He's from Tarsus. And for the next 10 years, wrap your head around that, 10 years, Saul will spend 10 years in Tarsus. What did he do in Tarsus? I don't know. In fact, nobody knows. Those are 10 silent years of Saul's life. Think about that. He moved back home. How humiliating to have to move back home, back to his old room, you know, in his parents' basement, probably had the still, had the old heavy metal posters on the wall from when he was in high school. And for 10 years, the great Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, he lived in obscurity in his hometown in Tarsus. You can imagine Saul during those 10 years wondering, what am I doing here? Why, why has God kept me on the sidelines? I feel like I have a calling on my life. I've got skills. I've got knowledge. I have a desire to serve God. Why is God keeping me on the sidelines, working a dead-end job, living in my parents' basement here in Tarsus? Maybe there are some of you who can relate to that. But I'll tell you this. These 10 silent years of Saul's life, of obscurity, they were very important for Saul. God did an important work in Saul's heart during these years. It was during this time that Saul, if you will, became Paul. It was during this time that God did a work in Saul's heart of humbling him and preparing him for what was to come next when he would be an apostle and a missionary, a pastor and an inspired writer of scripture, one of the most influential men in all of history. But before he did those things, 
God had him spend 10 years on the sidelines, living at home, working a dead-end job, serving in obscurity in Tarsus, doing who knows what. And that should encourage us that God knows what he's doing with your life and he has a good plan. So be faithful with what God has put in front of you right now and leave the future up to him because he loves you. And that brings us to our third miracle in this section, which is the miracle of a new body. Read what it says in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Many times through the book of Acts, we get these kind of summary statements that kind of just tell us, and here's what was happening. Here's the big picture of what was happening in the church. We're reminded that despite the hardships, despite the persecutions, the Christians were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They continued to multiply in number and they had peace. Notice that in spite of all the hardships and persecutions, in spite of the assassination attempts and death threats, they had peace. That doesn't mean that the persecution stopped. No, it means that they had peace in the midst of those circumstances. That's something really worth taking note of because God wants to give you peace even in the midst of the storms, even in the midst of the difficulties. If you're waiting for all the conflicts and difficulties in your life to cease so that you can have peace, you'll never have peace. But the promise of the gospel is that when you have Jesus and you know what the future holds for you in him, you can have peace and hope and joy even in the midst of the most trying circumstances. And that's what we see here that characterized these early Christians. Let's continue reading in verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came also down to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The third miracle in this section is the healing of a man's body. Peter says to this man, Aeneas, arise and make your bed. That's curiously similar to what Jesus said to the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2. Do you remember the story? It's the one where there was a paralyzed man and his friends were so desperate to get their friend to Jesus that they went up on top of the roof of a house, they removed the roof tiles, and they lowered their friend down through the roof of this crowded house to Jesus so that Jesus would heal him. When Jesus saw that paralyzed man who had been lowered down by his friends, he was pleased by their effort and he said to the man, arise, pick up your bed and go home. And so here's Peter, and he meets a man who's paralyzed. And what does he do? He essentially says the same thing to that man that Jesus had said to a parallel man when Peter had been there standing and watching. Do you see what Peter's doing? It seems that Peter is imitating Jesus. He's taking his cues from Jesus. And if you think that maybe that's a stretch, let me show you what comes next because you'll see it's even more clearly. This man is healed. His body's restored. That's the third miracle. The fourth and final miracle in this section is life out of death. Life out of death. Look at what it says in verse 36. There was in Joppa a man named, or a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. 
Such a good name, right? Dorcas. I love that name. People love to give their kids Bible names. And for some reason, I have not met a lot of people who named their kid Dorcas. I can't confirm it, but it's just my hunch that her full name was actually Dorcas Maximus. At least that's what I hope it was. Uh, her parents probably settled on that name after they considered a few other names, uh, such as Poindexter, Dweeby, or Goober, right? They landed on Dorcas. But in all seriousness, this is cool, right? It says that Dorcas was full of good works and charitable deeds. I think that's great because I'll tell you this, a lot of people are full of good ideas and recommendations for what other people ought to do. But how great is it to be a person like Dorcas, who isn't just full of good ideas, but is actually full of good works and charitable deeds. May God make us people like that. Well, let's read from verse 37 down to the end of the chapter. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside him. We, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, this is an interesting story here. Here's what we see. The fourth miracle in this section is the amazing story of how Peter prayed for Tabitha, and she came back to life. But here's what I want to point out. Once again, Peter does the exact same thing that Jesus did in a similar situation. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, we read how Jesus came to a house where there was a little girl who had died. And so what did Jesus do? He sent everybody out of the room where the little girl was, and he spoke to her and he said, little girl arise, which it says there in Aramaic was the phrase Talitha kumi. So here's Peter in a similar situation. And what does he do? He sends all the people out of the room and he says, Tabitha arise, which in that language would have sounded like this, Tabitha kumi. Do you see what I'm saying? It's almost the exact same words. Peter, what's he doing? He's imitating Jesus. He's asking himself, what would Jesus do in this situation? That's his guide for how he should act and respond in that given situation. He's letting Jesus be his guide and his leader. That's especially significant, I'd say, in Peter's life. Because if you look at Peter in the Gospels, you'll notice that Peter had sometimes tried to lead Jesus. He had said, Jesus, don't go to the cross. Jesus, don't wash my feet. Jesus, do this. Jesus, do that. Previously, Peter seemed to struggle with trying to lead Jesus. But now, Peter is letting Jesus be his leader. Maybe you're here today, and that's you. You've been trying to lead Jesus rather than letting Jesus lead you. You've been trying to get Jesus to sign on to your program, your agenda, your wants and desires. But Jesus would say, no, this isn't how it works. How it works is that you sign on to my program and my agenda. 
So Tabitha sits up. All the people are amazed. Many believe. It's a remarkable, unusual miracle. So let me end by saying this. In this section, we've seen four miracles, four extraordinary events which surpass all known human or natural powers and are ascribed to a, a supernatural cause. But here's the thing. Each of these miracles, as great as they were, they were only a glimpse of what is to come. They were only a preview of coming attractions. Each of these four miracles pointed to something that all of us desire deep down inside, to be made a new person, to have past mistakes and errors wiped away, to receive a new body, and to experience life out of death. There's a sense in which every one of us feels that there is something wrong with us. I recently heard someone speak about themselves to a, a group of people talking about themselves. It's somebody I know and somebody who I think highly of. And so I was very surprised when I heard this person speak, a person, again, who I'm, who, whom I consider to be intelligent, kind, and all around a wonderful person. But what this person said is that when she thought about herself, she deeply disliked herself. She disliked herself. And as a father who loves my children, it breaks my heart to think that my children would ever dislike themselves. Yet I realize that this is part of life. This is part of our fallen humanity, that basically every person in the world has these feelings, that there's something wrong with us, that we long to be something more. We long to be different than we are. And these four ways, these are some of the ways that we long and desire to be different in the most, most deep and profound ways. We long to be a new and different person on the one hand. Some of us long to have a new and better body, one that doesn't hurt, one that doesn't break down and get worn out, one that is beautiful and perfect. We all also desire to have our past, our mistakes wiped clean, a fresh start, and a, fresh, a clean slate. We desire to escape death and dying. We long to have life that doesn't end and love that lasts forever. And people spend their whole lives wishing for these things, chasing after these things. But at the end of the day, it's like chasing after the wind. These four miracles here in this section, they're glimpses of those things that we desire most deeply, deep down inside. What they reminded these people of, what they remind us of, is that these things which we long for so deeply can only be found in Jesus Christ. And yet, these four miracles, each of them was merely a glimpse. It was merely a preview of coming attractions. They were only part. They weren't the full. Saul became a new man, and yet he still struggled with shortcomings. Aeneas got a new body, but eventually that body wore out too. Dorcas was raised to new life again, but eventually she died again. Those four miracles, their windows, their glimpses, their previews of what is to come for those who are in Christ. Because the promise of the gospel is that in Christ, because of what he did on the cross, all of these things and more will be ours. The things we long for most deeply in our heart of hearts, to be completely redeemed and made new, to have new bodies, to overcome death and have life and love that lasts forever. All of these are promised to us in the gospel and they will indeed be yours in Christ if your faith is in Jesus. And it is for this reason that no matter what is happening in your life, you can have hope and joy and peace in the midst of it. Because in your heart of hearts, you know that what awaits you in Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things in fullness. 
These four miracles point us to what is to come for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I invite you today to put your hope and your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to find in the gospel the strength to walk in confident joy and hope and to have peace because of what he has done for you and what that means for you both now and for eternity. Would you please bow your heads with me and pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does miracles. You did miracles in the past. And Lord, we know that you are a God who never did the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do miracles in our lives. Lord, that we would have changed hearts. And Lord, that we would experience the miracle of transformation as you desire to form us into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you. We say, Lord, thank you for giving yourself for us. And so we respond in the only way that's possible, by giving ourselves to you and asking that you would do this miracle of transformation, redemption, and ultimately glorification in Jesus. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.